Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, It is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. So we are wrapping up a series uh, uh, on the topic, theme, the issue of marriage uh, that we've been looking at for, well, for five weeks now. And it's been pretty fantastic because um, most of the time, uh, at least in my experience, when you go to a, a church service where they're talking about marriage or you go to a seminar where they're talking about marriage, basically at, at the end of the, the session or the teaching, you know, there's these seven keys, these seven steps or the, the five, you know, ways in order to have a better marriage. Uh, we, we've been joking about uh, the seven steps to how to be happy though married. And so, you know, we, we typically think of, when we think of a marriage series, seminar, you know, these practical, just tell me what I need to do to make this woman happy. Tell me what I need to do to get this guy off his rear and doing stuff. What do I need to do? What do we need to do? And, and I'm not saying that's impractical. I'm not saying that's Im- improper. But what we've done, for those who are just kind of tuning in and joining in, um, what we've done is we've kind of pushed back from the table. And, and before we even really talk about, uh, you know, the how-tos of marriage, we're really talking about diving into why marriage? Why does this thing even exist? What's, who, who thought of this thing to start with? You know, where two people just, you know, staring at each other and just say, hey, what do you want to do today? I don't know. Let's just, you know, link up and chain up, connect together and be together till death do us part. Just something somebody just randomly came up with or or what? And so that's what we've been doing. And we've stumbled upon this passage in Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote to a bunch of Gentiles in the first century where he explains the reason behind marriage. He talks about why marriage. And, and, and this is going back to the first message. We're not going to review everything. But, but here's the big picture, that Jesus Christ, for his own purposes, he desired to have a bride. He desired to have someone to unite himself to called the bride of Christ. We also call it the church. We also call it us, us who believe. So he had this desire to unite himself. And so what Paul explains is that he, he has done this work through what he did on the cross and through his resurrection to end the Adamic race because nothing of the Adamic race was compatible with him because of this thing called sin. And so Jesus became a man born of a virgin so he himself did not have sin so that he could be raised up on a cross and into his own self. Just as we sang, he became our sin on the cross so that in his very death, he plunged the entire Adamic race into death, ending the race of Adam that began with the first Adam. So that a whole new creation, a whole new people, a whole new race, a whole new bride could now be born of him. 
and his spirit. This is what Jesus is getting at when he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, except a man be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is that which was born of Adam is not sufficient. You must be born of the spirit of God. You must be born of heaven, born from above. And so what Paul is getting at is this new creation, this bride of Christ has been joined to Christ so much so that Christ himself now cares for and cherishes the bride of Christ as he cherishes his own body. This is the reality of our union with the universe. He loves us as he loves his own self. To which we think, wow, I don't deserve that. Yeah, Sure, we don't, but it doesn't change the fact of what it is. He has decided to do this because of who he is, not because he looked at us and said, hey, there's some great people down there. Let me go save them. We were dead in our iniquities. We were face down in a pool of sin. There's nothing great about us, but because of his great love towards us, he decided to do this, to join himself to a new bride, a new creation, one with him, holy, righteous, splendid in all ways. In fact, the writer of First John, this guy named John, he says, as he is, talking about Jesus, so are we now in this world. In fact, we're going to start, not next week, but Sunday after that, talking about what that means. As he is, so are we now, and this comes through a union. And so Paul has seen what we struggle to see. He has seen the union of the bride of Christ and Christ, one new thing, joined together as one, as we just sang about. And Paul is saying, for this reason, this substantive reason of Christ in the church, this is why, see the verse? This is why down here on earth we have this thing where a man leaves his father and mother and is joined into his wife and the two become one flesh. This shadow of marriage is being cast from the substance of Christ in the church. And so if we're having problems down here in marriage, in the shadow, and raise your hand if you didn't have a single issue in your marriage this week. Exactly. So when we have issues here, where do we go? Where do we look? Well, we could try to look to each other. We could try to look to fix the other person. We could try to fix this and fix that and try, try, try. And maybe that can help. Maybe that can improve something. But what we're seeing is if we really want to fix our marriages, we really need to fix our eyes on the substance of Christ and his church because it's the substance of Christ and his church that casts this shadow of us here below. And so what we've been doing, and, and, and I encourage you, this is, we're in the fifth week, I encourage you to go back and check the podcast for all of what we've seen. But basically, if we don't see the substance for this reason, Christ and his church, this thing of marriage down here exists, if we don't see that, if we don't embrace that, then we're going to have all sorts of issues down here defining what this is, def- uh, understanding, improving this, But as soon as we start turning our eyes upon the substance of Christ and his church and seeing how much he loves the church and seeing how the church yields and submits to him and trusts him, then we can see what life is like here between, is to be here and is joyfully here in the shadow between a husband and his wife. And so today, 
what we're going to do, and I would love to just review all of what we've seen because it's just been so awesome. I really appreciate the encouragement that I've received from many of you and from even people on the podcast who have talked about, man, I've just never have seen marriage in this light, and it's just so refreshing. It's so fresh and new. But we need to move on to our last little installment of this series. So what we want to talk about today, what what is your, anybody, what is your favorite part of a wedding? You can think of your own wedding. You can think of another wedding, someone else's wedding. What is your favorite part of a wedding? Any takers? What part of the wedding, Steve? That's it. Yeah, that's, that's a good one, man. That's a good one. We'll, we'll come back to that, okay? Remind me to come back to that, okay? Because that's a big one. Yes, sir. The reception, all right? Well, did you read my notes? Because that's where we're going. That's what we're talking about today. Did you really? Did you read? Did you read ahead? Oh, did you? Did you look at the Bible app? <laughs> that's Bob Ramsey, son. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, okay. The reception. Any other thoughts before this is totally derailed? Your favorite part? You may kiss the bride. That's a good part. Eating food, we're going to get to that for sure. We're talking, that's, that's the big deal today that we're going to talk about. What else? Uh, yes, ma'am. What the bride is wearing, yeah. The wedding gown, yeah. The, excuse me, the vows, okay. So I was in, a, if it was undergrad or seminary, and um, the professor, we were talking about, you know, the best part of marriage or something like that, and I just, I'm a 20, 21, it was before, I'm sure we had met, but I, we weren't married, and I raised my hand, and I said, he, he was like, what's, what's the best part of the vows? What vows are the most important vows? And I raised my head, and I said, uh, to have and to hold, <laughs> and uh, I don't think he was prepared for that. Um, and so, uh, so the vows, the, the commitment that we're making to each other, uh, sure, all these parts, and we could, we could continue, and we all might have a, a unique part but what we're going to talk mainly about today is the reception, the food that follows. Why is the food that follows such a big deal? Um, and not every wedding has a reception, but when you do, it's a big deal, especially for the wedding party. I mean, you know, they've been there, they've been uh, getting dressed, they've been doing all their stuff for hours, and they're hungry. They're ready to eat. I mean, some brides, you know, haven't eaten in like six months. So they can like look their best, and so they're ready to, they're ready to chow down, you know. Or to drink it up, apparently. Um, and, and so uh, our reception was really awesome. Uh, we, we got married in this church that had just this old gymnasium. And we, we put this, uh, we engineered this, it's hard to describe, this uh, wire system, pulley system. And we draped, uh, it was just the stuff that you cover tables with. We draped it completely, like making this huge, beautiful tent inside this old, nasty, you know, gymnasium. And you walked into it, it's like you're in like this, you know, fairyland sort of place. It was really, really awesome. A lot of work went into it, but it was really awesome. And uh, people still sometimes, you know, get, you know when we go back to, to Lynchburg, they say, well, I just, I'll never forget your wedding. The reception was so beautiful, so awesome. Um, but what Steve mentioned was when the groom sees the bride for the first time on their wedding day. I saw a video just, the, just this week, I wish I'd put it on the screen, where this uh, groom 
he sees his bride, and he literally, this is on Facebook, maybe you saw it, he literally collapses uh, seeing her. He's seen her before, but just the sheer weight of, wow, she is mine, and I am hers. That's powerful. That's powerful. Should we not consider the same to be from the emotion of the Lord Jesus himself, who presented to himself a bride, who is you, which is you and I who believe in Christ? It's powerful. So what we're going to do today, we're going to talk about the reception. We're talking about eating. We're going to talk about the very first reception, the very first wedding reception ever. And then we're going to look at the very last wedding reception ever. And we're going to try to make some sense of this and to see just how amazing what we have now in Christ and just how beautiful this substance of Christ and his bride and their wedding reception, which is, it's ours if we trust in Christ. But let's first go back to Genesis. If you remember, we were in Genesis a few weeks ago, and Adam had all the animals filed in front of him, and none of them were compatible with Adam. And so God put Adam into a deep sleep, a shadow of Christ and his death, and he pulled out of Adam another human being that, is, that was completely compatible with him, and her name was Eve, a shadow of how Christ in his death purchased a bride and from his very own spirit was created, was birthed, a a brand new creation. Nothing of this world, but a brand new creation in the church, you, which is compatible perfectly with Christ. And they were, the Bible says that Adam and Eve, they, he entered into her and they became one uh, flesh, husband and wife. And the very next chapter, they had the very first meal. I don't know if this was their wedding reception or not, you know, but it's the very first meal after getting married. And we're going to pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent, which is a picture of, of, the, of Satan, Satan possessing this animal. Now the serpent was crafty, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, The devil through the snake talking to the woman, talking to Eve. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely, I thought her name was Eve, you surely will not die. So already he is not only tempting her, but he's lying to her. He's saying, you won't die. God has already said that she'll die. they'll die. But he says, you won't die. And look at what happens next. We know this, but let's look at it fresh. Satan continues to speak. He says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's the temptation. Don't you, Eve, 
don't you want to see clearly? Don't you want to see how God sees? Don't you want to be like God? That's the temptation. Don't you, Eve, want to be just like God? Well, somebody tell us, since we're so participatory this morning, somebody tell us, what, what's the problem with Satan tempting Eve and, and Adam, he's standing right there with her, to be like God? What, what's, what's fundamentally the issue there? There's only one God, okay. What else? back to Genesis chapter 1, where God said, let us, what? Make man in our image. So the temptation of Satan was to be like, don't you want to be like God? To which if Eve thought of it, and Adam, if they remembered the truth, the truth was they were already created in his what? Image. And he's saying, don't you want to see like God sees? Your eyes, don't you want your eyes open to see how God sees? Well, if they were already created in his image, then are they not already seeing as God sees? But the temptation was He's holding something back from you. He's keeping something. There's more to this. And here's the fundamental root, really, of the temptation. As long as you stay hitched, marriage term, to God, you won't be able to see everything there is to see. So Adam and Eve had a choice to make. Do we want to continue in this image that we already are made in the image of God? Or do we want to follow this very tempting thought to go outside of God, to go away from God and learn what is, what do you say, good and evil? Don't you want to really know what's good and evil? Don't you really want to know what's right and what's wrong to The vast majority of us would say knowing what is good and knowing what is evil is a good thing. Well, ask Adam and Eve that. If you were to ask Adam and Eve, call them up, text them, say, do you think that knowing, having the knowledge of good and evil is a good thing? What would they say? They would say, no. Because the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll read about in a second as they ate from that tree, which we'll talk about in a second, that resulted in their what? Their death. Their death. So, so here's the temptation. Here's the picture. Satan is coming to the woman, coming to the man, and say, God is holding back from you. As long as you are hitched to him, as long as you are joined to him, as long as you are with him, you'll not be able to see everything else there is to see. And so you need to find another point of reference. You need to become independent from him so that you can know really what is good and really what is evil. Again, the temptation to be like God. Does anybody know what Romans chapter 8, towards the end, I forget the verse, it says, God, Paul saying that God has predestined us to be, to come into the conformity of his Son. So, In all the universe, who desperately desires us to be like God? God. 
God himself desires us to be like God. So the temptation isn't simply, hey, don't you want to replace God? Don't you want to be like God in that sense? God wants us to be like him. That's why he lives in us. He's joined. We are one with him. The temptation was, do you want to be like God? This is important. Apart from God. Do you want to know what God knows without God as being your point of reference? Don't you want to see what you could see without God? And so the the rebellion was this was an act truly of independence. I want to know I want to know what there is to know separate from knowing God. And so in this first meal after their wedding, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She's hungry. She just had a wedding. You know, she maybe hadn't eaten in a while to fit in her dress. And she sees that it's good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. And she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Is mere wisdom a good thing, Eve? She thought so, but it was independent from God. That's the big, big deal. So she took the, its fruit and ate. I put that in red because that's the big deal. By taking the fruit, it wasn't just simply don't eat this. The picture is something so much bigger. It is I am going to put into me something other than God, some point of reference, some, some, uh, some, some uh, uh, reference point other than God himself so that I can really know what there is to know. And she ate it. And she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, just like Satan said they would be. But opened to what? Opened to a whole other point of reference. This conscience that's now condemning them. Because they knew, it says, that they were naked. So they looked at themselves. Because remember, at the end of chapter 2, they were both naked in the garden and happy and content. Seeing no issue with one another. But now having received this knowledge of good and evil, this knowledge of right and wrong, there is a condemnation within them, and they look at one another and say, this is not good for us to be naked. And so, the Scripture says, they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings, underwear, in essence, to cover up their nakedness. So they saw something, they saw things that God himself said was nothing wrong with. In fact, in a few verses later, we won't get into it, but they're hiding, they're covered. God comes in and he says, who told you you were naked? What's this new reference point you have? Because you've been running around here naked all this time, no problem. There's been nothing but intimacy and beauty between the two of you. But now you you have ingested, you have brought in not just an a fruit, but a whole other system, a whole other point of reference of what is moral, what is immoral other than me, other than God. You have hitched yourself up to another thing besides me for life. And as a result, you will now die. Because as soon as you 
Turn from me as soon as you let go of me as being your life. You have now no life, and you shall surely die. So, the result of this meal, this reception, if you will, was sin, death, alienation. And if you think about it, the one, God and man, now became what? Two. But thankfully, there's another meal, another reception, another uh, uh food to eat that Jesus himself came to talk about, that Jesus himself came to reveal and to give to mankind. But we don't even have to go to Genesis chapter, uh, John chapter 6, which we're going to in a second, to read about this. In fact, somebody tell us that you already know, in the garden there was this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, but there was also a what? Another tree. The tree of what? The tree of life. What is this tree of life? Where, where does this tree of life come from? They have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They now have a reference point other than God himself for, for what is good and pleasing and honorable. And now they have alienated themselves from God. They now want to be like God apart from being with God. They've rejected him in independence from him to try to find life, try to find good and evil apart from the very life of God. But there was another tree, the tree of life within this garden, that God even said, let us kick them out of this garden so they never return, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. He did not want them to eat from this tree of life, whoever, and whoever whatever this tree of life was in the garden, so that because he did not want them to live forever in this state of alienation from him. Because if they went and ate from this tree of life, then apparently they would live forever. Because that's what he said, at least they live forever. And live forever in a status, in a state of complete alienation from him. So he says, let's kick them out so they can never return. At least they eat from this tree of life and live forever. And so God's plan of redemption was in full effect when he actually took an animal and he slayed the animal take the skin off the animal, and he covered up their nakedness with the skin of an animal, a shadow, a picture of a sacrifice that would come thousands of years later where the Son of God would be slain to not just cover up our nakedness, our incompleteness, but where the Lamb of God would actually take it completely away. The tree of life in that garden that, that God did not want them to eat or else they would live forever without him. I think the tree of life in the garden was Jesus Christ himself. If you go to John with me, if you go with me to John chapter 6, and starting in verse 46, this is what Jesus says. This is Jesus talking to a mixed group of people, some of his disciples, some of them are, we'll see in a second, are Pharisees, Sadducees, some of the religious order. And he says, truly, truly, or this is the reality, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. If you believe. Believe what? Believe him. I am, verse 48, we're going to go through this, verse 57, I am the bread of 
life. So we're talking about meal. We're talking about eating. We're talking about ingesting things into us. The first wedding, had a, they ingested into them an idea of we want to be like God but without God. We want to know what God knows but without God. And now Jesus is on the scene talking about another meal, another thing to bring into yourself that actually brings life because the first meal had brought death. And he talks to them. Remember, he's talking to Jews. He says to them, he says, your fathers, talking about the children of Israel as they were in the, they left Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And the man in the wilderness, if you're not familiar with that, that was bread that actually came from heaven to sustain them. But they still died, Jesus says. And he's saying that was a shadow of this greater bread, talking about himself, that has now come. In fact, verse 50, he says, this is the bread. And I think he's like, you know, who's got two thumbs, you know. This is the bread, pointing to himself, which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat it and not die. So let's look at the difference here. In the first meal, they ate and they died, Adam and Eve. But Jesus is now talking about a meal that if you eat, you will not die. Totally different. Same concept of eating, same concept of of bringing into your being something that was not in you. So verse 51, what is this bread? What is this life? Verse 51 says, oops, I am the living bread. I, Jesus, am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, and the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, Jesus is talking very physically, very literally about his very body. We must understand that, yes, his body was broken. His body was, his physical body was prepared. A body was prepared for him so that in his death, the dying of us, our death occurred. But what he's talking about as far as eating his very body, like we have to understand that that's, that's he, he's not talking about us having like Jesus stew for lunch. But this is, Difficult for these in the first century because in chapter 52, I mean, verse 52, he says, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is this guy talking about? They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They couldn't internalize it. He's saying, I am bread from heaven, and my flesh is the flesh that the world needs to eat. And they're like, what are you talking about? You want us to eat you? In fact, in a couple of verses, the crowd that had begun to follow him, because this is just after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd that had begun to follow him, they start slowly thinning out. And I guarantee you'd start thinning out too if a guy starts saying, hey, you eat me and live without understanding the bigger picture, the bigger concept. And he says that to Peter. And Peter says to him, oh, where else shall we go? Because where else shall we go? Where, who else has the bread of life? Who else has the truth? And so verse 52, they're not understanding that Jesus isn't saying 
let's saute my flesh and eat it. He's talking spiritually that unless you receive, think about eating a meal, your favorite meal, unless you bring what is outside of you into you and receive it and it becomes a part of you, you will not live. So verse 53, Jesus starts to explain it further. So he says to them, okay, let me make it a little more blunt. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Oh, man, now we're just getting, we're up in the ante here, Jesus. You know, we were, we were kind of okay with the eating your flesh part. Not really, but now we got to drink your blood Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no life in yourself. Do you see that? Unless you bring what is outside my body, my blood into you, you do not have life in you. Because they had lost life when they brought the knowledge of good and evil into them. Trying to know what God knows apart from God as their reference. And Jesus is saying, I have finally come. I am here to undo what happened back there at the first wedding reception. What they ate brought death into them. But I have now come to bring you something to eat, not physically, but spiritually, that will now put life into you. Do you see this? Life. And whose life is it? The very life of Christ, which we've sung about this morning, his very life that is now inside of us. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last days. For my flesh is true food. What? My blood is true drink. This is crazy to me. We don't have time to get into this, but we're over here on planet Earth eating, you know, fish tacos and, you know, candy yams, and I'm getting hungry already just thinking about it. We're eating this stuff thinking this is real food. This is what, this is food. But what Jesus is saying is this whole system of eating and being sustained so that you can live is a shadow of something true, something real. The, something of a greater reality where my very own self, my very own life must come into you for you to have life. My body, my flesh, my blood is the true meal, the true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. So again, this first meal was a meal of we want to know everything there is to know apart from knowing God. We want to know what's right. We want to know what's wrong. We want to have a morality that excels, but without God as our very reference point. And when they ate of that, not just a piece of fruit, but that system, they died. And Jesus is now on the scene saying, listen, I have come to undo with a new wedding, with a new feast, a new meal to undo what happened way back then that if you receive me, you, as he's 
figuratively talking about eat me, bring me into you, then you will be in me and I will be in you. A union where I am now your very life. And he couldn't get any clearer than he does here in verse 57. This is so awesome. He says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of him. So look at this reference, because he's saying because of this, here's what's going on. Now something is going to happen over here. I live because of the Father. Jesus is stating his absolute complete dependence upon God the Father for his very own life. Do you remember all the times where Jesus said, the things that I do, I do not do them of my own accord, but I do everything that what? The Father tells me to do. Every time Jesus does a miracle that we can read about and see, there tends to always be a time where Jesus talks to the Father about it, whether it's the feeding of the 5,000 or raising the dead. Jesus is saying that he is doing what he's doing in this world 2,000 years ago as he lived and moved and breathed. He is doing it in absolute, complete dependence upon the Father. As the Father lives so do I live. Do you see this? As he, I have eaten, if you will, of him. And he is my life, Jesus is saying. Because he lives, I live. I live because of the Father. You see this? This is a picture that we don't get a whole lot. That Jesus and everything he did in this world, he did it in absolute perfect dependence upon the Father. So he's saying, as that is the case, as I am completely dependent upon the Father in every single way of life here and now, so also, in the exact same way, he who eats me will also live because of me. You see this? In the same way the Son is dependent upon the Father, in the exact same way Jesus is saying, we who receive him, we who believe him, we who ingest him, we who, as he's saying here figuratively, eat him, we live because of our absolute dependence upon Jesus. As Jesus was dependent upon the Father, so now we are perfectly dependent upon him. But the question is, do we really know just how dependent we really are on Jesus. The first wedding reception was one where they said they were deciding, in essence, we want to live independent of God. We want to know all these things that God knows without God as our reference. But what Jesus is inviting the world to in this last meal, this last wedding of the Christ and his bride, the church, is to eat him, to receive him, he being the meal, so that now we've undone everything that Adam and Eve done, so now we live in absolute, complete dependence upon him. So what does this matter for everyday life here and now in this thing we call marriage as we wrap up this marriage theme? Well, here's the question for us, 
Do we tend to live out our marriages in this idea of Adam and Eve trying to live out our marriage in complete independence or partial independence or most independence from God, trying our best to do our best, to please our mate, to, to, to manage, to control, to live these things out out of our own ability and our own efforts? Or do we understand what Jesus has come to do to not just be some sort of quick little meal for us, but to actually be life within us so that we are now, just as Jesus was dependent upon the Father, we are now dependent upon Him in everything, absolutely everything. In other words, for us to, very, for us to live is for Christ to live. We have a couple of ladies who are pregnant in the room this morning and it could be very well said that for your child to live is for you to live. Because your child is an absolute what upon you? Dependence. We have three kids all under six years of age. Even in their, you know, out of the womb and, you know, running around, they're still in complete what upon us? dependence upon us. Now, if something were to happen to us, then somebody else would step in and take them. But if something were to happen to a mom who has a child within them, then something's going to happen to the child because the child is living in complete dependence upon the life of the mom. That's what we need to see. In fact, that whole thing of a life inside of a life is all a shadow. It's all a shadow. This whole creation is a shadow of what we have in the reality of our life in Christ. A life inside of a life. He is our life. And as we live, to live is Christ. Just as a baby to live is mom, for us to live is Christ. And so we are completely dependent. What Paul is saying in that statement in Philippians is, I am absolutely, completely dependent upon Christ in me to know what to do, to know what to say, to know how to live, to know where to go. Whereas Adam and Eve, the system of I'm going to establish this right and wrong morality apart from God. So which is it that makes a marriage happy and blessed and enjoyable and a true shadow of the substance? One that is living in independence where we are trying our best to come on what we think he should do, what, what we think she should do, and why is she not that? In independence of this true form of absolute dependence upon Christ? Or if you could think with me for a minute, what would your marriage look like? What would my marriage look like if we lived every moment of every day realizing that we, like a baby in a womb, are completely, absolutely, 100% dependent upon someone else's life? And as I learn of my dependence upon Christ because I have received him, for him to live is for me to live. He is my life. And how that begins to transform how I relate to my wife, how I work with her, how I love her, how I forgive her, how I move with her, how I interact. Because the dependency comes upon Christ 
and not some sort of system of fairness and rightness and wrongness, and you did this, but you shouldn't have done that, and so forth and so on, rather than being completely dependent upon a life within of Christ who will always lead me into His steps, which His fruit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. So the question really as we wrap up this marriage system is do you want to fix your marriage? Do you really want to fix what's wrong in your marriage? If you do, then here's what I hear the Scripture saying. And we've said this for five weeks. It just happens to be our journey marker today. If you want to fix your marriage, whatever's wrong with it, communication, whether it's patience, whether it's love and kindness, I mean, whatever the situation is, no two marriages are the same, but we all have issues. If you want to fix your marriage, here you go. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I mean, it's really that simple, but yet it's so profound. It's really that simple, but yet it's so profound. Because as we fix our eyes on him, we see our complete dependence upon him. How in the world am I going to forgive her? How am I going to love him? How am I going to get over this thing that he's done to me, she's done to me? How, how, how? It's in complete dependence upon what he's done for me. It's by seeing what he's done to me. It's by seeing the great joy, just as Stephen talked about earlier, of a groom at the front of the, the, the ceremony, seeing his bride, knowing that Jesus Christ himself has the same affections for you because he created you for him. And so as we start to unfold and unwrap the great beauty and joy of what the substance is for this reason, Christ and his church, we start to learn over a lifetime of how this thing of marriage is to be lived with our eyes fixed on Jesus and what he's done with his bride and how the bride is so attracted to him because of his love for her. Ideally, it'd be in a marriage where both the husband and the wife embrace that completely together. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes the husband is eager to fix eyes on Jesus and the wife is wanting to not, or vice versa. You can't control the other. You say, well, I, I want to set my eyes on Jesus. I want to fix my eyes on him. I want to fix my marriage by fixing my eyes on him. But he doesn't. Well, you can't control him. You can't control her. So my suggestion is if you want to fix your marriage, fix your eyes on Jesus. I was thinking this week when I was talking with a friend Paul says in Romans chapter 2, says that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Anybody read that before? The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. You know what repentance means, right? Changing of your mind, right? It's the changing of your mind. So if you're in a situation where one spouse is super eager to fix their eyes on Jesus to fix the marriage and the other isn't, well, here's a suggestion to you. You fix your eyes on Jesus, allow the life of Christ, which you are so dependent upon, to live and exude through you, and the very fruit of His Spirit in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And as the very kindness of Christ is exuding through you, leaking out through you, being manifested through you, guess what will, over time, change? 
the mind of the one who is receiving the kindness. Because it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And I know many are in a situation like that. Do we give up? Do we give in? I say we fix our eyes on Jesus and let Him lead. How will He lead us in these situations? Because most of us are pretty familiar what it's like to live independent of this dependency on Christ. And where does that get us? Right? We all know where that gets us. I'm just saying, if that hadn't worked yet, and it's not going to start working, so let's change motives, let's change mentalities, and let us learn just how dependent upon Christ we truly are. And it's for this reason of our constant dependence upon Christ that when Jesus was about to be arrested, the night of his arrest, he told his disciples, he says, listen, I want you to take a piece of bread. I want you to take some of this cup and I want you to drink it and eat it and do it in remembrance of me so that you are constantly reminded of just how dependent you are upon me. And in fact, we're going to do that this morning. We have at your tables or close by, there's some right behind you, Martha, some cups and, and some bread. We call this the covenant meal. We call it the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. But it is a reminder that at some point in your life, you have received, you have eaten spiritually, you have received the work of Christ into your own body. And as your beef burrito this afternoon is going to give your body substance to live for the next few hours, the very life of Christ has come into your soul, into your spirit, into you. And His life, which is an eternal life, gives you life sustenance forever. When does His life end? Unfortunately, throughout the course of 2,000 years of church history, the taking of the Lord's Supper has been totally messed up to where it becomes this idea of let's first, before we eat, let's remember all of our sins. Let's, let's get our slate clean. Let's try to get as close as we can to Jesus before we eat this bread and drink this cup. Anybody ever been in a church setting where it's been something like that? Yeah, most of us, if not all of us. But is that anything what Jesus says to do? He's absolutely not. He says, Take this, eat this, receive this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. Not in remembrance of your sins, not in remembrance of your rebellion, not in remembrance of what Adam and Eve took into themselves trying to be independent from me. Take this in remembrance to remind you that you are dependent upon me, upon my life, upon my blood to forgive you and wash you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And so we take this bread and we take this cup not in remembrance of something we did, but we take it in remembrance of something He did. And He took away our sins. You can pray till Christmas and you're not going to get more forgiven than you already are now because you have received the very life of Christ in you. By taking this bread and taking this cup, you don't get cleaner, you don't get closer, you don't get a little bit further in your Christian walk. By taking this bread and taking this cup, you remember 
as it hits your tongue and as the juice flows down your throat, you remember a very physical remembrance of what has happened in the Spirit that the very body and blood of Christ has been broken for you to make you now one with Him. In the garden at that first meal, that which was one Christ and man, came to and now in this last meal eating of christ the two become now one so we celebrate we honor we thank him for what he has done we're going to close this morning instead of passing our mic around which i love doing um we're going to Stand and we're actually going to sing uh, the song that we sang earlier, It Is Finished, the one that Craig wrote several years ago. Um, And what I want to do, though, with this is I want us to sing it, having what we've heard, having heard what we've heard today, having come to a reminder, an understanding, a revelation of, of just how dependent we truly are upon Christ and how necessary. Uh, necessary it is to receive him in order to receive life and if we have received him we have received life i want us to consider singing this not just simply as a song of you know that we sing typically most every other song but i want us to sing this as if we truly see just how finished the finished work is i want us to sing it from a place not See, most of the time when we sing, we sing down here on earth and we we feel as though we're singing towards heaven, like this far off place, like, you know, our God is so good, so great, you know, and that's that's cool. But but what I would love for us to consider is singing this song from a totally different perspective, singing it as if we are in heaven, seated with him at the right hand of the father, which we are in Christ right now, singing it in testimony of the fact that it actually is finished. It actually did work. And so instead of calling up to God, we're actually calling down to earth, declaring with boldness, look, look at where I am. At the right hand of the Father, He and I are one. All By the finished work of Jesus. Not by my righteousness, not by my work, not by my anything, but solely by the finished work of Christ. A different perspective. Declaring to the world what is. Because you are as He is now in this world. Let's stand. Father, as we conclude this series on marriage, I pray that if we have gained anything from this time, it is this, that we, in order to fix marriage, whether it's our own, whether it's those with whom we we counsel and we talk and we discuss and we mentor, That if we truly want to fix this thing of marriage in this world, we must grow ever so aware of just how dependent we are on Christ. For He is our life. And that's not just some sort of bumper sticker coffee mug. 
Father, may that be a reality to us this morning. May we shout from heaven, declaring to this earth that it is finished. The Father, Spirit, Son, and I now are one. And for that, we just say thank you. Thank you.
Father, we thank you so much from the depths of our being, from the depths of our being, for what you have done. Father, as we stand now in your very presence, not because of a sacrifice that is offered often, time after time, each time that we sin, but we now sit in your very presence because of a sacrifice that was offered once and for all. For all sin, for all time, for all people. And an invitation has been sent that any 
man, woman, boy, and girl would but receive this gift of righteousness, this gift of life, Jesus Christ himself. Father, I just pray that we become a people that are ever so aware, ever so cognizant of just how much we depend upon Him. He is our life. All things were created by Him and for Him and through Him. And now He, the fullness of the Godhead, bodily dwells in me. Father, we thank you. Words are not enough. Words cannot even begin to convey this great wonder and amazement and worship and adoration and thanksgiving. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.